We're so glad you are with us today. Mothers play such a key role in what we're talking about in our message series, which is how discipleship begins at home. So far in this series, we've looked at how we need to be demonstrating priorities for those generations coming behind us. And last week, we looked at how it's important for us to communicate love and what it means to love like God loves. And whether you are a mother or father or a parent, if you're a parent, a grandparent or not, you still have a responsibility. I still have a responsibility to those generations coming behind us to pour into them, to disciple them so that they can be followers of Jesus. And we need to be setting that example. Today, we're going to be talking about a subject that, that moms play such a big part in, but, but all of us do, and that is teaching the generations coming behind us to take responsibility for their lives. I want to begin with a story from the Old Testament that I believe demonstrates a good example of a young lady who was taught the right priorities in her life and who handled it really, really well. She, she understood what it meant to love like God loves, but the thing we want to emphasize today is this. She learned to take responsibility on at an early age, and she handled it very well. It's found in Exodus chapter 2. If you want to be turning there in your scriptures at home, if you want to uh, pull it up on your smartphone or tablet, it's found in Exodus 2, beginning with verse 1. Let me set it up for you just a little bit. The Israelites are in slavery in Egypt. They've been there for a while now, and they are beginning to grow in population. They're having children, and Pharaoh got threatened by the numbers of the Israelites that they kept growing larger and larger. Now, he wanted to have them there, and he loved having the slave labor that he got from them, but he was afraid if their numbers got too large, they could be a threat to him and to the nation. And so he instituted an edict that said all male children born to the Israelites would be killed. Now, in light of that edict that he had issued, Let's pick up here in Exodus 2, verse 1. It says, Now a man of the tribe of Levi. Now from other passages, we know this man was Amram. Uh, that was his name. And he married a Levite woman. And from other passages, we know that her name was Jochebed. In fact, in Hebrew, it might be pronounced Jochebed. They had that guttural sound to how they would pronounce the, the names. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And we know that son's name is Moses. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. So while the baby was very small, she was successful in hiding him so that he was not discovered uh, by Pharaoh and his troops so that they could protect his life. But as he got older, it got harder and harder for her to hide him away and keep him from being discovered. It says in verse 3, but when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Now, the reason for coating it with tar and pitch is that she has a plan to put that basket in the water and it needed to float and be waterproof. And that's what the tar and the pitch would do for the basket. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. The Nile River was right there close by, and uh, it was a place she could go and place that floating basket there with the baby in it. But, but it says that she put the basket among the reeds. That was to keep it from washing down the river so that you could keep an eye on it and see what happened there. 
In verse 4, it says, here's the interesting part. His sister, this is Moses' sister that we know later on uh, from other passages. This is Miriam. His sister Miriam stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Can you imagine the responsibility that is given to Miriam? Now, most scholars believe she is probably only 12 or 13 years old at the most. And yet she has the responsibility to watch this basket, make sure it's safe and it doesn't come loose and wash down river, but also see what happens if anybody comes by and finds the baby. Miriam is responsible. I, I'm certain that Jochebed had practiced with Miriam and gone over it again and again and again. Miriam, I want you to watch this basket. This is your baby brother. Make sure that it's safe. If it comes loose, make sure you go get it quickly and get it back in place so, so that it doesn't wash downstream. And, and Miriam, if someone comes and finds that basket and discovers the baby, here's what you say. Here's how you handle it. And they probably rehearsed it over and over again to be sure she had it down pat. Well, here's what happens in verse 5. Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. So this is Pharaoh's daughter, the Pharaoh of Egypt, the one who's the commander-in-chief in charge of, of the whole nation. His daughter comes to bathe in the river, and she would not come alone ever. She would have her entourage with her. Her servants, her slaves that work for her would be there attending to her. And when she gets to the Nile that day, she sees that basket there caught among the reeds. And she knows it's not normal. It's not something you would see there all the time. So she sends one of her servants down to retrieve the basket and see what's going on there, see what it's all about. In verse 6, it says, the female slave got it, and it says she opened it and saw the baby, and he was crying. And she felt sorry for him. Now, what I want you to see here is two things. It's Miriam, this young girl, and how she steps into action here and how God is overseeing and orchestrating the whole thing. The baby is crying. That's an amazing thing because the baby might have been very docile at that point or not making any noise at all. But the fact that the baby was crying, I'm sure intensified the feelings that Pharaoh's daughter had for the baby and how she felt sorry for the baby and wanted to take care of this baby, make sure he was okay. Verse 7, then his sister asked Pharaoh, uh, first of all, he said he was crying. She felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. She recognized right away, right away. I'm sure she could tell by the physical appearance. This was not an Egyptian baby, but, but an Israelite baby. So she says, this is one of the Hebrew babies. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter. She stepped into action. Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? <laughs> I'm sure she had practiced saying that over and over. This was a wonderful opportunity. She realized the opportunity that, that God had, had put her in that place at that time to, to make this transaction happen that's about to happen. And in verse 8 it says, yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Uh, of all the Hebrew women she could get to nurse the baby, who did she go get? Of course she went to get the mother, Jochebed, to nurse the baby. For Pharaoh's daughter. So she went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me 
and I will pay you. <laughs> God has an amazing sense of humor and planning in such a way that it's far better than anything we could come up with ourselves. Here is a, is a time where that, that child's life is in danger. And not only does God make sure the, the child's life is protected, using this young girl, Miriam, to take on the responsibility of being sure this transaction takes place. But then not only does Jochebed get to nurse her own baby, but now the Egyptian government pays her to do it. Through Pharaoh's daughter, she's getting paid to nurse her own baby. Isn't it amazing how God orchestrated all of this? So she says, I'll pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses saying, I drew him out of the water. Jochebed had raised Miriam to accept this responsibility and she was able to handle it well. One of the greatest things we can do for the generations coming behind us is teach them to accept the responsibilities, to embrace them and handle them well, handle them well in their lives, especially as Christ followers. The, the responsibilities we have are all in light of our decision to follow God and his teachings, which means we take these responsibilities seriously in light of what God would want us to do, how he would want to hand us to handle these responsibilities. This young lady, Miriam, later becomes a prophet of God in scripture. We read about her being used by God to communicate God's message to his people. You see that early training of accepting that responsibility that God wanted her to have allowed her to be used by God in powerful and influential ways. Isn't that what we want for the generations coming behind us? That they would grow up to understand their greatest responsibility is to honor God and to be used by God to do the work that God has prepared them in advance to do. So I want to close today very quickly with four areas of responsibility that I see taught in Scripture that we need to train those generations coming behind us to accept and to handle well. Four areas of responsibility. The first one is we need to train them to be responsible for their work ethic, for how they do their work. In Exodus 20, we have a record there of the Ten Commandments. And one of those commandments says, six days you shall labor and do all your work. Now, that commandment is talking about the Sabbath day, but leading up to the establishment of the, of the Sabbath day, he's saying, but you need to work those other six days. It's a responsibility that you have to contribute to society, to contribute to yourself, your family, and to the community where you live to work the way God wants you to work. Now, that was an Old Testament commandment, right? And you say, well, we're under the New Covenant now. But in the New Testament, in Colossians 3, the first part of verse 23 says this, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord. As Christ followers, we have an added responsibility with the work that we do. We are to do our work, not like we're just doing it for our earthly boss or earthly company that we work for. We are to do our work like we're working for the Lord. I can remember as a, 
as a young boy at the age of eight, my parents came to me one day and said, uh, your older brother Ron started last year working uh, for uh, Beefy Eves. He was a guy in our, in our city, in our little town that worked with the recreation department in our town. And they had a, a youth work program there where he would take young uh, men and women, uh, young boys and girls, and put us into job situations where we could learn to do things and work for the city and actually get paid for it. And they came to me and said, uh, Randy, Beefy has agreed to take you on as one of those young men that will be working for him. At the age of eight, he would give me jobs to do. I would go into work daily. He would come by, in fact, and pick us up in his pickup truck. This is back before the seatbelt laws and all that. We would ride in the back of the truck and that little town into where he wanted us to work. And usually it started out with simple jobs like pulling up the grass weeds along the fence line of the ball fields in our town or picking up trash from where people threw trash down at the ball games and things like that. He would have us clean up the, the stands, the area where the stands were and where the ball fields were and make them look really good for the next day for the ball games are going to be happening later that day or the next day. So we started learning the responsibility of working and doing a good job with our work. Our parents taught us this, but also Beefy taught us this. It was part of his, his discipling us was to say, when you do this job, boys, you need to do it well. You need to do the best job you can do. Now, I know today's world is different, and we don't really have many programs like that anymore out there for our kids. So we have to get more creative than ever with the generations coming along now to give them jobs, to make it possible for them to do some work, maybe around the house or uh, in the yard at home during the, the time when they can work outside or whatever jobs we could give them to start. Now, I know, I know how hard this is. It's easier sometimes to do it yourself, isn't it? They, they're going to be slower. They may not do the job as well as you would do it. That's the only way they're going to learn is to start practicing doing work, meaningful work and being expected and taught to do those jobs. Well, it begins in the home. That's where they start learning the work ethic that God wants them to have. So we need to look for those opportunities at home, at school, uh, at and church ministries that we have going on. How can we include those younger people coming behind us and let them learn those skills and those trades? And so many here at Lakeshore, I see doing that. And in so many ministries, we have young people not only there for the services or there for the, the classes, but they're being used to, to help run sound or, or do a camera or lights or they're helping out with, with the, uh, teaching the lesson that day or leading the songs they're they're being taught to to do those things and to do them well and to take them seriously it really needs to start at home and we want to come around you at the church and help you with that so what the first area of responsibility we need to be pouring into our kids coming behind us is that work ethic the second one is we need to teach them to be responsible for their money I know you seem to, some people seem to think that's not a spiritual thing, but the scripture teaches otherwise. It teaches us that the way we handle our money is a spiritual thing. It's connected with our relationship to the Father. The way we manage, the way we steward what God entrusts us with is part of how we learn to honor God and teach others that God is to be honored. Part of what happened with us growing up as we worked at those jobs we had is we did get paid and we actually learned to set up an account to put the money in. 
And then we had to decide where the money was going to go, what we were going to do with that money. And our parents would, would help us with that. We would look at the account together and I'd say, well, I'd like to get this or get that. And they say, well, here's how much money you have. And if you spend it for that, then you won't have it for this other thing you said you wanted. So they were teaching us to be responsible with the money. Our young people today coming along behind us really need this lesson more than ever. You see, today it's easier for people to get in trouble with money, with credit and credit cards and credit accounts and going into debt quickly and easily, student loans and all those things that you can do that put you into a place where you have a financial burden in your lives. As Christian parents and grandparents and teachers and coaches and, and people that have influence over young people, we need to start teaching them at an early age how to manage well what God entrusts them with. Jesus taught this in many ways. He, taught, he had more to say about this subject than any other subject with the parables, the stories that he told and other things. And Luke 15 is one example of that. Uh, Luke 12, verse 15, he, he started out this way. He said to them, watch out. Whenever Jesus says, watch out, what should we do? <laughs> watch out. <laughs> Pay attention. Let's, let's hear what Jesus is going to tell us here. He says, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. And he makes a statement next that is powerfully important for the generations coming behind us. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And they're not going to hear that anywhere else but in God's word. You see, our culture doesn't teach that. The world economy doesn't teach that. Uh, the government programs, they don't teach that. Everything else pours into this thought process that your life is successful when you can make a lot of money, uh, have a lot of power, have influence, and possess all the stuff that you want to possess, that life consists in all of that. And friends, there's nothing evil about any of those things except the concept that that's what life consists of. We have to, to double down on our efforts now with the culture we're growing up kids in, we have to double down on our efforts to emphasize to them that that's not what life is really all about. And in order to emphasize that, he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. We have a culture today that's all about getting enough accumulated that you can then retire and take life easy, right? Isn't that the goal that we have in America for every person? And yet God said to him in verse 20, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be, he says, with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. He's not saying it's evil to work hard and make money and accumulate things. He's saying the problem is if you do that without being rich toward God, you've missed the whole point of God providing those things for you. So we need to teach them to be responsible for their money. The third area is to be responsible for their behavior. 
I'm amazed at how culture has changed so much. If I got in trouble at school, you can be sure my parents knew about it before I got home. And when I got home, they weren't going to defend the teacher. They weren't going to, I mean, they weren't going to defend me against the teacher. They weren't going to defend me against the principal. They were going to defend the teacher and the principal. And I was going to be held responsible for the behavior that got me in trouble. I think we've reversed that order a lot in our culture. And I think we're seeing some negative consequences because of that. Here's a principle we need to pour into our kids early on. Galatians 6, beginning with verse 7. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. There's a law in the kingdom of God in his created order of things that says this. You reap what you sow. And our children need to learn that at a very early age. He says, whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. We need to take responsibility for our own behavior. Children need to learn. There are consequences to both good behavior and bad behavior. And we need to allow them as hard as it is. I know as a parent, as a grandparent, how hard it is to let your children suffer the consequences of bad behavior. But they'll never learn if we don't allow them to suffer those consequences. And why is that such a big deal? It's because it says in Romans 14, 12, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. You see, there is going to be accountability. We are going to have to accept responsibility for how we behaved in this world. And the sooner we learn that, the better. So we need to teach our children to be, have responsibility for their work ethic and their money, their behavior. And the final one is they need to be responsible for their spiritual lives. Early on, it starts with the parents, right? Or, or the parental figures in their lives, teaching them God's word and obedience to God's word. That's why Paul said in Ephesians 6, verse 1, children, obey your parents. How? In the Lord, for this is right. So the assumption in that statement is parents will be in the Lord, teaching their children to obey them in the Lord, in their example in the Lord. Boy, that's the right way to do it. It says, to children, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. We need to connect being obedient in the Lord to the blessings that come with it. Children need to learn that connection, that there's, it's not just being obedient because you're saying, you know, they're being told you have to do this or because I said so. It's because we want you and God wants you to enjoy the blessings that come with being obedient in the Lord. And then he says, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. There's a key word there when it says to fathers, bring them up in the training and instruction. Now, let me ask you something. When you're training with some, for something, what's the purpose behind it? Here's the purpose so that you can then do it yourself. That's the whole purpose for training. When a coach trains the players, getting them ready for the game, when the game starts, it's not the coaches that are going to be on the field. It's the players and they're going to be expected to execute what they've been trained to do. When we're teaching our children in school, it should be so that they can apply that knowledge when they are in the workforce or, or in their family time together with their families, raising their own family. That training is, is intended to help them execute the plan that they're being trained for. 
will see as, as followers of Christ, parents, grandparents, other adults that have influence over children, our training should be with the intent that they are then able to take responsibility for their own spiritual lives. We don't have to spoon feed them as they grow up and get older. They start feeding themselves. They start nourishing themselves and growing by their own efforts into the image of Jesus. Now, I want to throw in something here because I know some people will say, well, I didn't have parents that did that. I didn't have grandparents. I didn't have anybody in my life doing that for me. Here's the good news. Even if you didn't get this from your own parents or somebody in your life, it still becomes your responsibility to break that cycle and to start a new cycle. Stop using your past as an excuse. God has already provided for you everything you need to start a brand new cycle for yourself and those coming behind you. You see, the scripture tells us in 2 Timothy 3, beginning with verse 16, that all scripture is God breathed. So there's where the training is now, okay? Directly from the mouth of God. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. He put in his word all the training, all the teaching, all the equipping we need to break the old bad negative cycles maybe that, that were generational in our family. We could start brand new right here, right now with a new legacy being left behind us. And it all begins by discipling in the home and then the church coming around you and supporting you and what you're doing in the home. I want to close with a passage. It's my life verse, Romans 12, 1 and 2. It says this, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies, in view of God's mercy, he says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. We have so mystifying worship in our culture that we think it's about going somewhere, listening for a little while and going back home again. Your true spiritual act of worship is this. It is, it is taking God's word into your heart, letting it rebuke and correct and train you in righteousness so that in view of God's mercy, you can give your body to him as a living sacrifice. That's what's pleasing to God as an act of worship. He says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds that comes from learning and applying God's word. He says, then here's the result. You'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. You see, that's what God wants for you. That's what he wants for those coming behind us is that they're able to test and understand and know what God's will is for their lives. And here's the beautiful thing about God's will. It's good. It's pleasing. Friends, it's perfect for every one of us. God wants you to be walking in his will for your life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you've given us in your word the teaching that we need to get our lives under your will and then for us to be able to influence the generations coming behind us to know and walk in your will too. Use us for your glory, for those generations coming behind us that we can lead and teach and disciple them to follow you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.